This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Science Friction. Natasha Mitchell here. Last October, I interviewed three UK doctors, all living with so-called long COVID. Now, that's the term being used to describe the long tail of often perplexing, often very disabling symptoms that many infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus experience, even many months later. They're all living with this kind of real-time biological experiment going on inside their bodies right now. This virus is still so new to medicine. So I'm bringing you that program again today because next week, all three are joining me 10 months since we last spoke. And their stories are incredible. They're also, I think, a visceral cautionary tale as Boris Johnson lifts all pandemic control measures in England with his so-called Freedom Day, and as we here in Australia grapple with a growing Delta variant outbreak. So let's start with Dr Amy Small in Edinburgh. Back in time, so back to October 2020. I know it feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Gosh, if I could go back and speak to myself <laughs> as a GP prior to all of this, I know that I would have been a much better doctor then and I will hopefully be a much better doctor now. I have seen too many cases online of people not being heard, not being listened to, their symptoms and their concerns not being validated. I've seen heartbreaking stories of people just being dismissed. I've seen heartbreaking stories of people losing their jobs. And I am very lucky that I have a platform where I can speak up and try and get long COVID recognised as an illness. Long COVID appears to not discriminate. Healthy people, young people, people who apparently had a mild case of COVID-19, and every system in our bodies can be affected. Here are the other two doctors you'll meet today. Many of my colleagues have been unwell since March and have really struggled to get any kind of medical input until the last couple of months. Those who weren't hospitalised with the illness were just sort of left to get to get on with it. It's the classic thing. I suspect it might even be a bloke thing. Deny it for long enough, it'll go away. Yeah? Diminish it. Ignore it. Oh no, not another thing to worry about. I suspect all those are going through people's minds and that'll include medics, politicians, but they will be left with the long-term consequences. And in terms of the total health burden, that will way exceed whatever acute COVID did to us. So are we facing another pandemic? This one, silent, confusing, harder to diagnose. A pandemic of long COVID. I'm Dr Amy Small. I'm 39 and I'm a GP in Lothian in Scotland. A gorgeous part of the world in the Scottish lowlands. And before the pandemic, Dr Small's life was... Busy. Um, when I think back, it was busy and chaotic and getting up at 6.30 every morning and out of the house by 7.30. And yeah, as a family, we, we were very active and very busy. But at work... So back in February and March 2020, Amy and colleagues were on high alert. The sense of impending doom that we felt on those first few weeks, we're seeing reports of huge numbers of people dying in Italy and just thinking, gosh, you know, is that coming our way? And it was just really, really scary. I'm Dr Natalie McDermott. I'm an academic clinical lecturer at King's College London. And she specialises in paediatric infectious diseases. Dr McDermott is no stranger to deadly infections. Ebola, cholera, 
now coronavirus. She's been on the front line of them all. I was working in Liberia, in, in the capital Monrovia in July 2014 as, as cases of Ebola started spreading spread very rapidly. Our morgue was overflowing because we had so many dead bodies, but we we didn't have services coming to pick them up. So the burial teams weren't, uh, well, they were trying their best, but they were limited as well. Uh, but during that time, two of my colleagues, one of whom was our medical director for our treatment facility, they became infected with Ebola. Um, I saw, I suppose, about 30% of my patients that died in those first two weeks that I was in Liberia. 30% of them were healthcare workers. What Natalie witnessed firsthand was hellish, but it galvanised her as a doctor. She went on to do a PhD investigating the genetics of our susceptibility to Ebola virus disease. And when COVID-19 hit... I was working in paediatric infectious diseases at Great Ormond Street Hospital when we started to see a surge of cases of what we now call multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. Previously healthy children started falling very ill. They would come in generally unwell, but looking okay. And then within a few hours sometimes, but maybe certainly within 24 hours, many of them would suddenly drop their blood pressure uh, and and become very tachycardic. So their heart rate would become very fast. At that stage, it was thought children were only ever mildly affected by COVID-19. And on the whole, it seems they are. But then Natalie and colleagues found... Well, a lot of them didn't test positive in terms of their throat swabs for COVID-19. They tested positive for antibodies to COVID-19, either uh, actually at the beginning of their illness or at some point during their illness. Dr Ian Frayling, I'm consulting genetic pathologist to St Mark's Hospital in Harrow in London and St Vincent's Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. Ian Frailing is a practising doctor and leader in the genetics of bowel and related cancers, collaborating with colleagues around the world, including here in Australia. At the beginning of the pandemic, Wales looked pretty safe. I think there was like two identified cases in Wales, each one about 40 kilometres either side of me, so east and west. So, you know, you get the impression, well, there's almost none of it about. So the odds of you catching it must be next to nothing. But on the 1st of March, Ian fronted up to his hospital's emergency department, not because of COVID-19. He'd copped a gash in his knee while gardening. 12 stitches and a couple of days later... I feel a bit out of sorts, a bit feverish. And I reflect with my wife, who happens to be a professor of immunology, and I said, I'm feeling a bit out of sorts and a bit feverish, but the wound is really inflamed. It needed 12 stitches and I had a tetanus boost. So it's probably that, isn't it, you know? But it wasn't that. It was COVID-19. Meanwhile, across in Edinburgh, and fast-forwarding now a few weeks to the 11th of April, GP Dr Amy Small hasn't knowingly seen any patients with COVID-19 yet. It's a Saturday and she's out exercising with her family, her husband, three-year-old and five-year-old. And I just remember saying to my husband, I don't feel right, and came home and that evening started to develop a fever. And the next day I woke up just feeling really breathless. The fever was then really present and the headache was horrendous. And then I started to get all over body aches. And then my husband started to feel unwell. The dry cough came on day six and the breathlessness continued. Amy borrowed an oxygen probe from work to monitor her oxygen levels. On one day it dropped down to 88%. 
And that was really worrying. Um, and I was sort of getting close to thinking, right, we need to go to hospital now. Um, but then it picked up again. And at, at that stage, the message was so much stay at home. Whilst, of course, all along trying to look after a, a then three and a five-year-old who, although they got it too, they, they were well within 24 hours. But three weeks on and Amy's temperature had stayed high. And one day she was dangerously breathless. And I ended up that evening calling the hospital and just saying, look, I'm, I'm really worried. And they, they took me in and they did a chest x-ray and they did other tests and they said, yep, everything's fine. Your oxygen's fine. Um, we're not quite sure why this is happening to people, but we are seeing it. Go home, take it easy. And if things get worse, come back. We'll call you in three months and see how you are. And I was kind of just left to it really at that point. And that's been the message for people not in need of hospitalisation, but recovering from COVID-19. Go home and ride it out. But as Amy has discovered in the month since, that's a problem. Meanwhile, down in London, so again back at the end of March 2020, one of Dr Nathalie McDermott's colleagues tested positive for COVID-19. And then about three days later, I started to develop chills. About 24 hours later, I had a fever. And then that progressed to being probably a fever for several days with extreme muscle aches and pains. About six days in, I became breathless, not so much at rest, but trying to do anything basic around the house. I was quite breathless. And on around day eight, I lost my sense of smell and taste. During that illness, I tested negative. I recovered from that episode of illness that, you know, I believe was COVID given my exposure and it it met the clinical case definition for COVID. And confusing to receive a, a negative test, that could have been a false negative. I think that there's variable expression of the virus in people's throats. So it maybe doesn't stay there for very long in some people. And therefore, when you try to test for the virus, you don't necessarily find it. But it's already perhaps triggered that immune response that's causing some of the symptoms. Dr Amy Small's initial COVID-19 test didn't come back positive either. But this doesn't mean that Amy and Natalie weren't infected. Over in Wales, also back in March, Dr Ian Frailing was about to experience something very scary. I had this weird feeling of like a burning sensation on my back when I put my shirt on and I thought, that's a bit strange, but my wife said, well, you haven't got a rash or anything. I went off coffee and things started to taste a bit strange. Then I was coughing a bit at night. But by Friday the 13th of March... Wallop. I took to my bed and it's like the worst five or six days of my life. I'd I'd felt a bit sort of feverish, but nothing sort of definite. And then all of a sudden it came on with a vengeance. And there was this cough that was, as people say, like no other. It, it, It came from within. There was just this stimulus from within to cough and cough and cough. And there was, you, you kind of couldn't stop it. And I, I was just curled up in bed with alternating freezing hot and boiling cold. And for, right from the start, there'd been the most horrible headache. And so I'm sort of in bed and I think as a medic, I know, okay, so this is probably it then. I know I've got to cough. I, I know I've got to cough and drink to save my life. Yeah? Because if I don't keep my fluids up and I don't get the stuff out of my chest, I've had it. Dr. Frailing's blood pressure got disturbingly, even dangerously low. He fainted a few times and came off his hypertensive medication. He had appalling muscle and joint pains. 
and he says his mind couldn't stop racing. He had all sorts of weird thoughts. If, if I'd had my wits about me or it had happened two weeks, a month later, I would have stuck my hand up very early on and said, get me into hospital now. But at the time, it was, it was all the unknown, yeah? And I think one of the frightening aspects about it was, in retrospect, my God, Ian, you know, it's, it's like you've just driven with your eyes shut down the motorway and you really shouldn't have done but you knew no better and nobody else did either. It's that, that's part of what's so scary. You, you realize somebody shot at you and it's brushed the hair of your head. And if it was a fraction of an inch either side, that would be it. You know, I'd have been a statistic. But eight months on, so by now it's October 2020, at the time of recording this interview, Ian could become part of a different statistic. You struggle to even think about thinking about something. Like others, Ian's body and brain simply aren't functioning as they did. It's really quite sort of distressing to be sort of knocked down to that level. You don't even bother reading a book because you know you won't get past a sentence before having to read it three or four times and then you give it up as a hopeless task. He struggles with finding words. His language has been affected. He has bouts of tachycardia where his heart races. His sleep is disturbed. And that feeling of brain fog that increasing numbers of people are talking about months after being infected with COVID-19. For Ian Frayling, that comes and goes. He says it feels like he has a kind of cyclical chronic fatigue syndrome. It correlates with when I've got really sort of all over muscle ache and it's as if all my muscles have no power. There's, there's, there's no point in even trying to do something sort of strenuous or anything and it just aches just sitting there <laughs> I, I struggle intellectually to, to cope with trying to sort of conceive of a, of a mechanism for this for this condition it's, it's just weirdness For Dr Amy Small six months on she regularly still has high temperatures fever aches all over dizziness searing headaches tinnitus and the crashing fatigue can be beyond overwhelming. Interestingly, in June, I was feeling a bit better physically and, and tried to do half a day's work. And I went up to my practice and did a normal clinic and came home. And that afternoon, I started to feel tired. And, but like a fatigue that I've never experienced. And just doing half a day's work using my brain left me bedbound for about 10 days. My speech was slurring. I couldn't find my words. I had a day when I couldn't speak. Um, just eating cereal fatigued my jaw. I'd never experienced anything like it. And that was just from having used my brain. It completely fatigued my body. And then I've had it the other way around where the other day I had to go to town to go to the bank. So I walked at a normal pace for a, an adult <laughs> rather than at my four-year-old's pace and walked for about half a mile. And then I got on a bus into town. And when I got off the bus, I, I looked down at my legs and I was staring at them. And my husband's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I feel like my legs aren't mine. And then my speech started to slur. I couldn't find my words. The headache kicked in and we had to get in a cab and come straight home again. It, it's just bizarre how it can come on like that just so suddenly, just from having pushed your heart rate up 
everything drains away from you. And it's a really terrifying experience. As a clinician, do you have a sense of what your immune system is telling you if you're having ongoing symptoms, acute symptoms like fever? Yeah, I mean, I think people are sort of postulating that although the active coronavirus is within our bodies is, is possibly now dead, our immune systems have been triggered to believe that it isn't. And so it's almost like our immune systems think COVID is still going around and doing stuff to us. And therefore, it's kind of firing off and creating a fever to try and get rid of it, even though the acute, the acute insult isn't there. But I don't know, because in August, so four months in, I suddenly lost my sense of smell. And that to me is a new thing. So I, I just don't understand it. I don't understand how it's affecting our bodies. You know, I think this is something that just needs so much more research and investment. Long COVID has been a similar kind of roller coaster for infectious diseases, Dr. Natalie McDermott in London. She thought she'd recovered, but at the end of May, all the symptoms returned as if she was infected again. This time, she started to get a lot of pain in her feet. She and her doctor thought it was likely neuropathic pain related to nerve damage. At one stage, she stopped feeling the soles of her feet while driving. She's no longer driving. Then she noticed her legs becoming weak and shaky and starting to spasm when she walked. So she had an MRI scan and nerve conduction tests. The MRI scan looked normal, but there was a suggestion that I might have a small fibre neuropathy affecting sort of the sen sensory fibres in, in my hands and feet and legs. But uh, over time, that, that sort of progressed. So whatever was going on neurologically, it was starting to affect my, my bladder and my bowel function as well. So I couldn't always um, empty my bladder properly. And then I got uh, two urinary tract infections during that time. And every time I got a urinary tract infection, uh, sensory loss got worse. So it started to progress throughout my hands, whereas it had really largely been in my feet before. And I got neuropathic pain in my hands as well. And uh, my manual dexterity got worse. Um, and then um, I, about a few weeks ago, uh, I'm not entirely sure what happened, but suddenly everything took a significant turn for the worse. And um, I, I'm no longer able to walk more than a, a few hundred metres at the moment because my legs just aren't strong enough. Uh, walking up and down stairs is difficult and I have quite severe pain in my back um, that radiates down my arms and legs. Um, so my, my neurologists uh, believe that I have a myelopathy, so uh, something is affecting the function of my spinal cord. But whether that is inflammation or the effect of the virus itself or... Uh, triggered by the virus and sort of removing the fatty sheath that is on our nerve cells. It's unclear which of those it might be. Um, and I've been having some investigations to try and work out what that is. But obviously, at the moment, it's extremely debilitating. From working as a doctor on the front line of a pandemic, Natalie's effectively now fighting at the front line of her own body. For someone who's experienced with infectious diseases, what do you think's going on in your body? I think that the virus has probably triggered my immune response to attack my own nerve cells, I think is probably what's happening. And I wonder if that was perhaps exacerbated by the fact that I maybe got infected a second time. The variety of this is kind of almost what defines it. And the severity of what's 
called long COVID, we, we know from studies so far, is relatively unrelated to the severity of the acute disease, the COVID. So it, it is a struggle. We, we, we need people to study us to find out what the matter is. I think I've got, if you like, standard chronic fatigue, if, if that's an acceptable term. Others seem to have very much more complicated symptoms. They have their breathing affected in a much more serious manner. They have permanent changes to their lungs. Some people have permanent changes to the conduction pathways in their hearts. I mean, some people can't walk. Yeah, absolutely. Some people are far worse off, you know. I mean, certainly people living with chronic fatigue syndrome, for example, and related syndromes have struggled for years to be heard, to be taken seriously. There's been no clear diagnostic test that doctors can rely on. The symptoms have been diffuse and different according to different individuals. So, you know, there's been a a kind of um, an interesting alliance emerging, I gather, between people experiencing the long tail of COVID-19, which features this shocking deep fatigue that you're describing, and patient groups with chronic fatigue syndrome. I I wonder how you observe that coalition. Yeah, I mean, gosh, we have so much to learn from each other. I think that ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, and all of the related syndromes that go alongside that population have been deeply let down by by medicine in, in the last God knows how many years. They have been gaslighted by medics for a long time. They've been told that their symptoms are psychological. It's interesting because I think I've connected with a lot of people on Twitter and many of them are sort of hopeful that funding and, and research will be done on long COVID that, that may then help benefit them. But of course, there's others who are just like, this is nothing new. You know, why Why are you all so special with your long COVID when we've had this for years and no one's believed us? Why will anyone believe, believe you now? You know, so I, I very much would like to work alongside this population. I think we have so much to learn from each other and a lot to gain from working together. I hope that given the volume of people affected by long COVID uh, in a short space of time and the likely link to an infection with COVID at some stage means that it's much harder to dismiss this and we as a medical profession can learn uh, to not dismiss people purely on the basis of, of some normal initial tests. Last year, Natalie, Ian and Amy were amongst 36 other UK doctors who published a letter in the British Medical Journal with a manifesto for action on long COVID. Gosh, we've got everything from people who have been hospitalised and who are still bed bound, you know, six, seven months in, who literally are needing help to get washed and showered and dressed to people who are able to work to a certain degree. Some people have lost their jobs and others are working even when they're not well, but they have to work because let's say they're locums or, you know, they have to work to to make ends meet. So there's a real wide range of people out there and and what they're experiencing, what they're suffering. We're now discovering that many of my colleagues actually have got evidence of underlying organ damage um, secondary to COVID that's only now being picked up because it it just simply wasn't possible to be seen in an outpatient department up until fairly recently. You know, there's other colleagues having never had any allergies previously, they now are having actual episodes of anaphylactic shock following exposure to food or or 
various products that they previously had no issue with. So it's obviously triggering different things in different people. And and probably some of that comes down to, you know, the individual's immune response and how it's interacting with the virus. But the, the underlying pathology is probably a little bit different and how we manage each case might therefore be a little bit different. This coalition of doctors living with long COVID want others in their situation, some of whom could be their future patients, to be seen, heard, counted, monitored and studied. They're calling for more research to be done on the long-term effects of this virus. Uh, and we know that we as doctors have have navigated the system a little bit better than many, many people out there who, who are non-medical. Uh, and therefore, we, we were concerned that there are probably tens of thousands of people in the UK population who have been affected by long COVID uh, with the potential for long-term, you know, organ damage or organ impairment that needs addressing, and they weren't able to uh, access any kind of specialist input for their condition. And and often their condition was being dismissed as possibly being sort of just a a post-viral fatigue or a chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, that's not to say that some people don't have a post-viral fatigue going on, but that should be a diagnosis of exclusion uh, once everything has been investigated, particularly when people are complaining of ongoing significant breathlessness, neurological problems and significant chest pain that that sounds cardiac in nature, so related to the heart. Yes, I mean, in one case, a, a woman conveyed that she'd had symptoms of stroke and heart attack and she was referred to a psychiatrist. Yes, you know, the medical profession has the inclination really when it can't explain something or when our, you know, our initial basic tests are, are appear normal, that we dismiss things as being anxiety related or psychosomatic. And, and I think it's really important that we don't go down that route until everything has been comprehensively investigated by a specialist, you know, whatever that complaint may be. You know, I, I, I've sat before people and, you know, coming to me as a doctor and thought, oh God, you know, I know what they're coming about. What am I going to be able to do for them? And knowing deep down that that probably there's nothing I can do for them and just finding that really difficult, maybe even sometimes finding, finding an annoyance because I just felt so helpless to help person sitting in front of me that I know desperately needed my help, but there was nothing I had to offer. And now I know there's so much you can offer as a GP and, you know, it will have made me a much better doctor for it. Amy Small and Natalie McDermott didn't come up as positive on a COVID-19 test, but they and their doctors are confident they contracted the virus. Though that raises further concerns. Dr Amy Small. I think one of the things that's been quite difficult is this um, business of people who either haven't had tests or who have had false negative tests and where doctors are being asked to write COVID on their sick note. If you work for the NHS um, or you're a civil servant, your sick note, if it says COVID on it, you get special leave rather than sick leave. Now, this means for people that their pay doesn't get, their occupational sick pay doesn't get cut after six months. It means they don't get any sick leave entitlement issues. It, it, It makes a huge difference for people in terms of their their future in their jobs, put it that way. Um, and the, the scepticism I've come across from doctors is, well, they didn't have a test, so how can I say it's COVID? And the argument I keep making is, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it is a duck, regardless of whether they've had a test or not. And so I've been trying to advocate for people to say, look, you know, 
if a patient has lost their sense of smell or has had a cough and is now tired and has all the classic symptoms that everyone is describing, please put that it's suspected COVID on their sick note because that could make a difference between someone potentially losing their job or losing a huge amount of income. And the symptoms are so varied between different people. This is what makes it so tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is the thing. There are some people who have predominantly sort of gastrointestinal symptoms, diarrhea, things like that. Other people who have more neurological symptoms, people who who can't have altered sensation, who can't walk. There are those who have chronic cough. There are those who only lost their sense of smell and nothing else. You know, it's a multi-system disease that attacks in very different ways in different people. And the more we learn, the more we realise the damage it's doing to our bodies. And it seems that some people who have what ostensibly looks like a mild case at at face value, then go on to experience extremely debilitating symptoms over a long time period. So there's nothing predictive here. We think that probably about 15% of people with COVID may go on to develop long COVID. There are children with it and there are elderly people with it. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme nor reason as to who gets that or why. It seems that this unique coalition of doctors turned COVID-19 patient activists are now being heard. Their voices could be carrying sway. Dr Natalie McDermott. And we're very grateful that in the last couple of weeks, the NHS has recognised that there is a, a condition or at least a heterogeneous condition called long COVID. And just last week, the head of NHS England announced that all regions of the of, of England, at least, will be setting up long COVID uh, or at least COVID clinics that people can access whether they were hospitalised or not to investigate what these ongoing problems are appropriately. You know, at least initially it was either mild or severe and we were told that younger people were likely to have a mild infection, might even be asymptomatic. They would get over it and that would be that. But I think that we need to change the narrative on that really. Anyone, it seems, can potentially get ongoing, as we now call it, long COVID symptoms. Until we understand that better, we won't know how to fully address it. We need to realise it's a spectrum of disease and it is also a multi-system disease. Not everyone will need to see every specialist, but some people will need to see a cardiologist. Some people will need to see a neurologist. Some people will need to see a respiratory physician. Uh, And so it's important that we have people that have an understanding of what this condition entails, but also then refer them for rehabilitation services to try and help them uh, get back to their original level of function. Meanwhile, Dr Ian Frailing's way of coping has been to donate his antibodies, cells, to as many scientific studies and trials as he can, including for the company Regeneron's experimental synthetic monoclonal antibody drug. There is a sort of a a, a weird fascination with with me being my own experiment. It's 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 really rather an interesting thing in a sense, and and it sort of satisfies to some extent my my curiosity and fascination with disease and illness and trying to understand mechanisms. And if I can help understand it, well, the first step in getting a proper handle on anything is understanding the mechanism of disease. Once you do that, then you can think about treatments. This is a priority. This is not something you can just ignore and it will go away because I could tell you for nothing, it won't. 
I have every expectation I will have this by Christmas. And I don't know which Christmas it'll stop. We see lots of young people now getting infected because they've gone back to university and stuff. A good proportion of them will, will not be able to complete their studies. They will have their, potentially the rest of their lives ruined. They won't be able to achieve their ambitions. We owe it to everybody. I, you see the statistics every day of, you know, oh, another, another 13,000 known cases. Okay. There, there must be a whole load of other cases that are asymptomatic who haven't been tested so far. And you just think, well, 5 to 10% of them are going to be affected with long term serious condition. Dr. Natalie McDermott is undergoing further tests to try and understand why she can't walk properly. Are you worried? Are you frightened? I'm not frightened, but I think obviously I am concerned that I might not get full function back again. Dr Amy Small is worried about when she'll be able to return to work. I worry about so the, the, the long-term viability of, of, of being a GP. I worry about not being able to properly run around and play football with my kids who love it. Are we going to be able to just leave, lead normal lives? I worry about getting worse and then my children having to become carers. Um, you know, there are times when they've, they've brought me things and they're like, I brought you that because you're not feeling well, mummy. And, and it's absolutely heartbreaking to see a four-year-old look at his mum in that way and think, oh, I must help mummy because she's not well. You know, it shouldn't be that way. You know, it should be the other way around. So, yeah, I, I worry about the future. I worry about the impact um, on every aspect of my life. I keep on coming back to sort of thinking of this like after the First World War, there's that the, the soldiers came back They'd seen what it was like. They could talk about they they could talk about it amongst themselves. People who understood, people who could empathise and sympathise, and they would accept that sympathy. But for everybody at home, all the people who, who weren't directly affected, they only heard of somebody down the street who'd got it. They 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 don't understand. They 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 they're upset at having some restriction on their life. It's going to be a very interesting thing after the event. That there will be a sort of a thin layer in society of people who've had it, who've got the remnants of disease, who've got antibodies, long-term serious side effects. And, and for most of the population, it'll be something that happened on telly that was an inconvenience. It, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's true, I suspect. Big thanks to doctors Ian Frayling, Amy Small and Natalie McDermott. Now, next week, 10 months after I recorded these interviews, all three doctors join me again. I really wanted to hear how they're doing now, and I imagine you're curious to know too. And their stories will surprise you. I think they will shock you. The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has gone hell for leather and officially ended all pandemic restrictions in England, even as case numbers there explode again. That has these three doctors extremely concerned. Join me and them next week. You can find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell or via email on the Science Friction website. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.